Please be advised, all music tracks used in this production are sole property of Kelson Communications and are original compositions. Thank you. To everyone tuning in, welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, the program that promotes, celebrates, uplifts, and highlights the social work profession. This podcast aims to educate the general public to the vital contributions professional social workers make in every aspect of society every day. Hello, everyone. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, and I have with me today a special guest for today's show, who is Dr. Donna Volpita. She's the founder and education director of Pathways to Empower. And Dr. Volpita has an educational doctorate, and she makes the brain science of resilience and mental health easy to understand and apply. Her resilient mindset model, which is very fascinating, by the way, it draws on the latest research in neurology, psychology, and education, and has been applied to areas of leadership from parenting to corporate management. Donna is the co-author of the book, The Resilience Formula, A Guide to Proactive, Not Reactive Parenting, author of Neural World, A Guide for Teaching the Brain Science of Resilience, and co-creator of the Name Tags Education Program. Dr. Volpita holds advisory board positions for One Revolution Foundation and Kids Helping Kids, both of which develop resilience in youth. She is a global presence ambassador for Parenting 2.0 and a member of the Character Collaborative. She is an expert for Understood.org and Modern Mom and has given presentations at numerous professional conferences. Dr. Volpita is a former classroom teacher with experience in both general and special education. She holds a doctoral degree in learning disabilities from Teachers College, Columbia University, and is the mother of four adolescents. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce our guest for today's show, Dr. Donna Volpita. Welcome to the show, Donna. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you asking me. I'm, I'm excited for our discussion. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So before we get started, just share with our listeners a little bit about how you got to uh, the point in your career where you started doing um, studies of the resilient mindset model and maybe just kind of explain that as well as give a little bit more background about how you got to where you're at today. Well, I am an educator by trade. It's funny because I talk about the neuroscience. And so the first thing I, I usually say to people when I get up to speak is I am not a neuroscientist. I work with a lot of neuroscientists and I have checked with a lot of them to make sure that um, everything works. Um, but I'm an educator. I was a teacher by trade. I taught mostly special education. I've taught from kindergarten all the way up through graduate school, mostly working with students with learning attention and emotional issues. And um, so I, I spent years teaching, left to get my doctoral degree. And when I graduated, I had the first of my four kids. I um, actually graduated the day that I, three days um, after I gave birth to my third I graduated from my program and I really wanted to understand how I could help them actually it started with the idea of how can I help them to build social language how can I help them because I was loved studying Vygotsky in my program and he talks a lot about how kids learn socially So I started with that, spent a lot of time on the playground with my kids and helping them with, um, you know, as they were playing with other kids and ended up 
switching from the idea of social language to seeing how that translated to building resilience. Mm-hmm. I wrote a parenting book called The Resilience Formula, a guide to proactive, not reactive parenting. And then that was what got me interested in the brain science. Oh. I thought, wow, I need to understand how understand the brain to understand how we can build resilience. Because in the book, we talked about a framework. We talked about the 4S framework, which is actually part of the model that I created. Yes. Um, and it's the idea of using challenges to build resilience. But what I found was that it didn't always work. So I wanted <laughs> to understand what was going on in the brain? So how were we really naturally responding? And that's when I started studying the brain science. Okay. But my goal is to be a translator, to make it easy. Mm-hmm. And that's how I developed the model. Okay. Uh, now, you mentioned um, a couple of points I'd like you to kind of highlight or, you know, or reemphasize or emphasize further, I should say. Um Explain to our listeners what you mean and what's the concept behind social language. So I guess the um, when I was teaching, probably the, the turning point in my career was I was a teacher. And of course, you know, administrators come in and they do evaluations. And I got an evaluation back one day and I didn't do too well in one area. And so I went to the administrator and I said, I I really don't understand this. How come I didn't do so well here? And I'll never forget it. She turned to me and she said, shut up. You talk too much. (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) She said, it's not about sort of giving them all the information. It's getting them to talk to one another Mm. so that they can actually create that information in their own brains. So it's fostering their ability to talk to one another, not just getting up and lecturing to them. And it was this light bulb moment. And I spent the rest of my teaching career trying to figure out how to get kids to work cooperatively and how to structure the classroom in a way to build in routines so that kids could talk to one another. And one of the things, you know, I realized that I was there up at night grading their homework. They never looked at it again, so they didn't learn anything from it. I was spending so much time doing it, but it wasn't being very helpful. So one of the things that I started to do was there was a routine that when they came into class, they would take out their homework and pair up with someone else in the class and they would check their answers and if they disagreed with an answer then they would try and work it out and see if they could figure out the solution and if not they had to ask another team what they got and see what they see who had the the answer that they would all agree on Mm -hmm. and if the two teams couldn't figure it out then they would call on me And that gave me an opportunity to go around and begin to see how how students were doing and ask questions and and figure out where the problem areas were for different students. And it was a great routine. And what I found was that through talking it out together with one another, they were much better at teaching each other because they wanted to be right. (laughs) Um, And they would, you know, they would try and argue their point. They almost always came up with a solution together. Mm -hmm. 
And it seemed so much more powerful. Um, and then my, I think my final evaluation was from the same administrator. And we we had coffee because <laughs> the, the students were, you know, talking and doing. It was so much more dynamic. Wow. And when I went back to when I went to school, I learned about Vygotsky as a theorist who talks about that the way we learn best is socially. Mm, and there are a number okay. of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. OK. And, uh, you know, interesting that you mentioned that about um, the students um, teaching the other students. And you brought up a very uh important point which is that you know the reason why they're so invested in and in, in trying to teach their peers because they they want to to be right and that leads back to the whole concept of in uh in teaching you know because I, I did spend many years teaching in the career training um, fields as well in teaching mm-hmm. they said that the most important thing is that if one student could explain and teach to another student a concept that that other student was struggling with, then that proves that the student that's doing the teaching actually knows the material. So what you said makes perfect sense that they wanted to be right because that proved to them that I can teach this because I know it. So that, right. that's a great point. Now, you, you also mentioned the uh, the 4 uh, framework. So talk a little bit about that uh and, and there was a lot of interesting information about the four different characters and how that all came to, you know, the resilience and the problem solving. So enlighten our listeners on that a little bit, if you could. So the model. So once once we wrote the book and I started studying the, the science, I came up with a model that the idea was that it was easy enough for a six-year-old to understand because my youngest was six at the time and I wanted to be able to explain it to him. But it was a simple model that could explain the brain's response to any challenge from the playground to the boardroom. Mm. So whether we're working with preschoolers or whether we're working with corporate leaders, I wanted this to be able to explain what was happening. And so I did a lot of sort of I guess, studying on my own and reading and trying to figure it out. Um, And the first part of the model, the model has three parts. The first is the four S's of resilience. And that I had kind of come up with earlier um, Mm -hmm. before I started the model. And that was the idea that our resilience is our response to any challenge, good, bad, big, or small. So I need resilience to get up out of bed in the morning. I need resilience to be able to set a goal for myself. So that's not a negative thing. We often think of resilience as handling a negative challenge, but it's also the positive challenges Mm -hmm. that we have that we need resilience. And we say that our response, our resilience, is based on the way we think about four S's. And the first is self who am I? What do I think about myself, my strengths, my weaknesses, my values, anything that I think about who I am? The second is the situation. How do I take that challenge and put it into perspective and break it down into its doable parts? So can I break it down into, okay, first I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that. The third is supports. Who do I go to to ask for help or where do I go to get help? Do I know 
where to go? Do I know who to ask? And do I know how to ask them? And the last is strategies. What are the actual mm. things that I do? Um, do I know when a strategy isn't working? Do I have another one to go to? Um, and eventually, even learning the strategy of giving up, of saying, you know what? It's not time for this challenge right now for mm. me. I'm just beating my head against the wall, so I'm not going to do this right now. The interesting part about that is that the reality of the four S's is completely irrelevant. I could have 20 um, supports to go to, but if I don't think I have them, I won't access them. Mm. So the important part is the brain pathways that we've created. How do we think about those four S's? So we can use them to prepare for, handle, and reflect on any challenge. And when we do, we're proactively building more resilient brain pathways. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And the 4S framework, the the self, the situation, the support, and the strategy, uh, can you share some successes that you've had applying that so we can kind of get a a general idea of how you applied it and what were the results? So it can be any challenge that we can can do it. And we don't have to use all four S's. It Mm -hmm. might be that just as we're working, I I can do it with myself where sometimes I can stop myself and say, all right, is this strategy working? I need to change, change what I'm doing here. Do I have another strategy? I might stop myself and say, hmm, I'm kind of digging in my heels here, but maybe I should reach out and ask a friend for help. Mm -hmm. But we can also do it with clients that we're working with or, or students or children um, where so often we go and we try and solve problems for them. So I'll give an example from the playground because I used it so often or when kids are playing together. So, Often when a toddler, when a a young child wants a toy that another child is playing with, what will he do, right? If he wants the toy, he grabs it, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's the strategy that he has. He will grab the toy from the other child. And often what happens, and I've seen it so many times, parents run over and they'll say, oh, no, no, you know, you can't grab the toy. You have to give it back or it's his turn now. You've got to give him a turn. So the parents will solve that that challenge for them. Mm. But really what they need is strategies. So often I would go over and I, I would say, wait a second. And I would say to the child, you know what? You're probably not going to play with that toy forever. So instead of grabbing it, can you say, may I have a turn, please? Can you use the strategy? So I'm going to give them a strategy of may I have a turn, please? Mm. And so they would say, may I have a turn, please? And of course the other child would say, Yes. No. (laughs) They always said no. (laughs) Because kids don't want to give up the toy. They're playing with it. They feel like they have a right. And so I would say, I understand you're still playing with it, but you're probably not going to play with it forever. So could you, instead of saying no, why don't you say, I'll give you a turn when I'm done? So giving them another strategy. Mm -hmm. And so they would say, I'll give you a turn when I'm done. Inevitably, the children would walk away, and two minutes later, the child would give the toy to um, to the child who wanted it. Wow, because what they've had is they have control. They have a strategy that maybe they won't use it next time, but if you keep repeating that, they will learn the strategy of asking for a turn. 
Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting. Great example, too. Thank you for sharing that. Talk a little bit about the whole concept about mental health being brain health. How does that connection uh, manifest itself? Before I go into that part, I would love to go back to the four characters just because we started with the model and we talked about the four S's, but I think the brain science piece is so important. And this is, it's a very visual model, but the second part of the model is understanding the brain's natural response to challenge. Mm -hmm. And this is really where that mental health comes in. Okay. And we think of decisions that we make. So when we face a challenge, we think of decisions that we make as good versus bad. I made a good choice or I made a bad choice. But our brains don't think that way. Our brains don't think good, bad. They think long-term versus short-term. So some of our decisions are made in the long-term, some are in the short-term. And the characters kind of help explain how our brain naturally responds. So we have the ant that represents the part of the brain in charge of our long-term decisions, Mm -hmm. putting money in the bank, um, going for a run, you know, eating healthy, finishing our project that's due tomorrow, going to the doctor, the things that we may not really feel like doing, but we know that they're better for us in the long run, so we're going to do it. And the ant holds the tools of a healthy brain. So one of the big pieces of fostering mental health is understanding how we can keep our brains healthy. And the ant holds those tools, things like he holds a walkie-talkie to stand for social connections. We need social connections. We're social creatures, and that's so important to our brain health. He has on um, hiking boots for exercise Mm. and a banana for nutrition and a sleeping bag for rest and a little merit badge for that stands for compassion, pride, and gratitude. So we need to experience those to have a healthy brain. So the first step in that is understanding how to keep our brains healthy with those tools. The grasshopper is the character that represents the limbic system, which is the part of the brain that's in charge of our short-term decisions. So the grasshopper doesn't really care if you finish your project that's due tomorrow. He wants to watch Netflix and eat pizza, (laughs) right? We We can all relate to the grasshopper. Oh, for sure. (laughs) So his decisions aren't really bad, but they're short term. They're for the here and now. So he really is a fun part of the brain, but he's also in charge of um, fight, flight or freeze. Mm -hmm. So when we get into trouble, our grasshopper is the one who's going to get us out of the way of the oncoming car because he's fast and he's strong. Our limbic system can get us there. The glowworm is the character that represents the amygdala, which is a part of the limbic system in charge of looking out for threats. Mm -hmm. The main job of the brain is to survive. Yes. That's the goal. And so the glowworm, when she sees that car, it's her job to switch control of the brain from the ant to the grasshopper and get us out of the way for fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. The dragonfly is in charge of overriding, is in charge of knowing when to say to the glowworm, nope, no reason to go fight, flight, or freeze. We've got this. Mm. We know how to handle this situation because we have those four S's in place. 
one of the really interesting things is that social threats and rewards have the same impact on our brain as physical. So just like that car coming at us, when we feel a social threat, we will also go red alert and call out the grasshopper. So that dragonfly needs to be ready to override so that we're not screaming at each other all the time. And REACTS is an acronym. That's the third part of the model that Mm -hmm. stands for the social threats and rewards to the brain. Mm -hmm. But when we think about mental health, one of the things that we think about, particularly in terms of social work, is trauma, Mm -hmm. right? And how trauma affects brain health. The way that trauma affects brain health is that that glowworm becomes stronger. Mm-hmm. It's more ready to react to danger. And the dragonfly becomes weaker. We're less able to override those responses. So we think about how the glowworm will call out that grasshopper for fight, flight, or freeze. Mm-hmm. And I want to give you an example in the classroom. So let's think about a child who maybe has experienced trauma, maybe not, but he may not have done his homework or he may have not gotten an answer. And he may be worried that that teacher is going to call on him, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a social threat because it threatens respect. It threatens his status within the classroom there. Mm -hmm. So, The glowworm will be ready to protect us, and so we'll switch control of the brain from the ant to the grasshopper. And so the grasshopper chucks a pencil across the room at another kid, right? Mm -hmm. That is a short-term decision. But what it does is it gets them thrown out of the room and keeps them from having to answer that question and looking, being made fun of by his friends. Because he doesn't have the answer. Right. Mm. So we may think of that as a bad decision, Mm -hmm. but for the grasshopper, that's not a bad decision. That's actually a really good decision. And the grasshopper doesn't have to worry about the consequences. It's almost like a survival technique. It's absolutely a survival technique. Mm -hmm. Very well put. I like the way that you use that analogy. And, you know, a lot of times... As you mentioned, when children are acting out in general, it's not because they're unruly or they're bad. It's something else going on. So it's very interesting how, you know, you use those four characters to kind of really get a deeper understanding. And I could see how being able to explain that to others, parents and other educators would, would help them. They also have a deeper understanding because it's, it's very plain and, uh, and put forth in a way that's very understandable. So then that kind of talks a little bit about, you know, the mental health being brain health. And, and that also ties into, and if you could just touch on the whole concept that's, you know, come upon the, uh, the mental health therapy and counseling in the last, I would say, five years is the uh, adverse childhood experiences. So mental health being brain health, trauma, trauma-informed care, how does that all morph into, you know, how we can maybe move past that and, and provide a better foundation for children to grow up to be uh, more well-adjusted adults? I think it is so important for people to understand the ACEs and their effects. Mm. And not only that, so the adverse childhood experiences, that's individual trauma. Mm -hmm. That's looking at individual trauma. And so 
when we look at kids who have experienced trauma, their amygdala, their glowworm is more likely to be ready to trigger because the brain wants to survive. And so it sort of magnifies that effect and is more likely to have kids respond faster and go into that that uh, grasshopper mode. Mm-hmm. The other thing that happens is that their, their dragonfly can't override. So they're more likely to have those responses that we look at as bad responses when really they're survival mechanisms. But not only that, not only do we have the ACEs right now, there are three types of trauma. There's individual trauma, which is tied to the ACEs. There's collective trauma that we're all experiencing right now with this Mm -hmm. pandemic. Mm -hmm. And then there's transgenerational trauma. Trauma can actually be passed through the genes. Yes. Hi, this is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. I'm the host of the Kelson on the Air social work podcast, heard and hosted right here on Anchor FM, and I love it. Try it, and you'll love it too. And here's why. First, you get an RSS feed, which is absolutely critical for distribution of your podcast. Your show will be distributed and heard on seven additional podcast platforms besides Anchor. Platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and much, much more. And get this, they even offer analytics so that you can see how well your podcast is doing. And as if that weren't enough, they also give you a breakdown of what each chart or graph means. In addition to that, when you host your podcast on Anchor, you get international exposure. That's right. Your podcast is heard in different countries around the globe. And just so you know that they're really in your corner, they provide you with info about sponsorship opportunities as well. So for secure services for your podcast, make sure to use your anchor, Podcasting Services. So now we have kids experiencing so much trauma and understanding that for them to be able to learn, we need to have some have a classroom that is predictable, that is calm, that is consistent, that keeps them from being reacting quite so quickly. And also for them to have people who understand the responses that they might have and why they have those mm-hmm. and be able to identify that this is what triggered that response. Mm-hmm. And often that is a sense of control because control is what is the social threat that is often triggered during trauma. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I found very interesting is in understanding and, and, and hearing and learning about and reading about the ACEs, the advanced childhood experiences, is that the trauma it's been shown and research has, you know, indicated that it actually gets stored in the DNA and transgenerational trauma. It passes down from one generation to the next. And there's something that's 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 percolating in the genetic makeup of that child, or that individual or who eventually goes into an adult. And that continues to manifest itself. And sometimes it takes somebody with experience and how to get them to realize that a lot of what's happening is because of a lot of childhood um, adverse childhood experiences. Now you, you mentioned about the uh, fact of, of changing the, the paradigm of mental health 
from reactive to proactive. And a lot of what you've already explained, you know, talks a lot about that. But can you elaborate a little further on that and then tie that maybe to mental health being brain health? Well, so much of our paradigm right now is treatment, which is critically important, right? We need to have treatment for individuals who are experiencing mental health issues. But the other piece of that is to be proactive and to begin to teach people about how they can foster brain health, how they can foster resilience, um, because resilience is a protective factor against mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So we can begin to teach people about the brain science and teach them how they can foster mental health and then also begin to understand when someone is experiencing mental health issues so that we can begin to treat earlier. So being proactive about that by starting really, really young, teaching kids about their brain health. And then that also helps in terms of the stigma, because if kids are talking brain health from, you know, preschool on, it, there's so much less stigma involved. Absolutely. And that's a big uh, uh, pro prohibitive factor to a lot of people today. And it's been as far back as you can remember, a prohibitive factor in people seeking out uh, help when they need it for mental health and wellness issues because of the stigma. People hide in the shadows and they don't come out because if you say you have cancer or you say you have uh, diabetes, then you go to the doctor and the doctor, you know, gives you some medication, uh, you know, assesses you, diagnoses you, gives you medication to treat that. And everybody, you know, has some empathy. But to say, well, you know, I'm not feeling well mentally or I'm under a lot of stress and it's causing me some mental discomfort. Well, it's hard for people to say that because in society's mind, that makes that individual look weak or not being able to handle the stress of the moment. So um, in, in what ways do you think we can get society as a whole to kind of really move past that and accept the fact when somebody's brave enough to admit that they're struggling? The one thing that I will say is we're moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. It is amazing how much, how quickly we have moved into that direction. And I do believe that COVID has helped in that matter because so many people are experiencing mental health issues mm -hmm. that it's no longer so much of a um, taboo subject, um, particularly in terms of anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is becoming much more widely talked about. Um, and one of the things that I say is that when we look at violence, anxiety, and depression, that roughly translates to fight, flight, and freeze. Mm -hmm. And so... The idea of anxiety and depression, a lot of people think the opposite of anxiety and depression is happiness, but really it's action. Mm. It's being able to have that override, have that dragonfly say, no, we've got this. We've got the four S's in place. We can handle this situation. Mm -hmm. So we can have anxiety a little bit, but when it becomes overwhelming Often that's because we don't know how to respond. Mm -hmm. So when we're in a situation like a pandemic, being able to say, 
yes, this is anxiety provoking, right? It's, it's scary. We don't feel like we have a sense of control, but we can implement some sense of control. We can mitigate our risks as we begin to begin to learn more about it. We could say, okay, we can wear a mask. Okay, we can distance from each other. Okay, we can stay outside. We can implement these mitigation factors that give us a sense of control and make us feel less anxious. Yeah, and, and that Stems mm-hmm. from the four S's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the whole sense of uh, being in control of, you know, what's happening um, in the here and the now. And that, that also kind of leads to the whole concept of, uh, you know, the big uh, surge towards mindfulness, staying in this moment. Because theoretically, you know, the research has shown that one of the major causes of anxiety um, which sometimes also can lead to depression, is somebody worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or in the next hour when we don't really know, so there's nothing we can do about the next hour or the next day or the next week, but being mindful and staying in the moment. What can I do? And that kind of leads into a lot of what you were just saying, uh, Donna. What can I do right now to be okay and to just survive and get through this moment? So it's almost like you can't fix what you won't face. And people, they, they run from their troubles and they run from their uh, fears and they run from their concerns uh, because they just don't know how to handle it or whether or not they're even capable of handling it. So those are the types of things that, you know, I see that make it more palpable to just like just worry about what you can ha- handle today, right here and right now, because. All the other stuff is just creating more anxiety. And so have you found in your research and your treatment that the the four S's and the four characters and the reacts um, treatment modalities helps people to address the the whole concept of anxiety? One of the things that I find interesting when I'm presenting is that so many people talk about mindfulness, Mm -hmm. but they don't really understand what it is and what it does. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the model, what mindful practice does when we spend the time to pay attention to our breathing, pay attention to our sensors, and sit down and focus in on the moment, it is like putting our dragonfly in the gym. Mm. It's exercise to build strength in our dragonfly. Now, remember, our dragonfly is the one who's overriding the glowworm, Mm -hmm. overriding that sense of fight, flight, or freeze. So the two ways to build up the dragonfly is mindful practice and building up those four S's so that we have the strategies in place to override. So the idea behind the four S's is overriding that anxiety because it gives us strategies. It gives us people to go to. It gives us a way to put it in perspective and break it down Mm -hmm. into the parts that we can do. So we feel a better sense of control. Mm. Okay. Very well put. I like the way you put that. So, um, now uh, talk a little bit about the company that you started or your, your initiative, Um, pathways to empower did that come after the research or did the research that you've done and your findings uh, inspire you to create pathways to empower or did you create pathways to empower first and then um, because your desire to want to help people and and find new ways 
that caused you to do more research? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of uh, even a little bit more complex than that. I had a company called the Center for Resilient Leadership mm -hmm. um, that I ran. And basically, it was me um, going around and teaching the model and teaching about resilience. Um, and I wasn't really talking about mental health, but I've been talking about the resilience and talking about the brain science and the model for probably a good 12 years. Mm -hmm. And during that 12 years, I've always looked for a business partner and I've always said, you know, I could really make a business if I could find a business partner. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked for someone for a very long time and two things happened last summer. So last August, the first is that I realized that states were beginning to implement legislation requiring teachers to teach mental health literacy yes, in school. Yes. New York became the first state to mm -hmm. require it from K through 12. Yes. And so last August, I called up the state. I called up New York because I'm, I'm a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. um, and I called up the state and said, how is that going? And they said, you know, there are so few resources and so few teachers feel prepared to teach this. Mm -hmm. And I saw an opportunity because I thought, well, everything I've been talking about gives a foundation for mental health, that mental health is just brain health. And I've been teaching that for 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew that I had the materials ready Mm -hmm. um, and the second thing that happened is I met that business partner. Um, I was introduced to a gentleman named Jason Schofield. He's awesome. And he is able to take the information and create it into scalable, usable solutions. Mm -hmm. So um, the first thing we did, we launched Pathways to Empower together in January and we, the first thing we did was we created a guidebook for teaching mental health literacy. So we, we figured teachers needed this. We've been talking to teachers and they said, we need a book to teach us the soup to nuts. How do I teach mental health literacy? Um, I actually presented that for the first time at a conference on March 5th. Of this it year? Of this year. It was wow, probably right the, the last <laughs> in-person conference. <laughs> that was right at the cusp of uh, the onset of the, the lockdown and the pandemic. Uh, that's so uh, ironic that it was March 5th. Um, I did my last presentation at Stony Brook University uh, to the learning day for, for, for the BSW and MSW. I remember it was on March 3rd, and I remember yep. walking into – uh, the auditorium, and I have a lot of wonderful colleagues at Stony Brook University. And I remember way back then walking in, everybody getting ready to greet, and we stopped and we did an elbow bump instead. <laughs> well, and we were doing elbow bumps then, right? Yeah, Which, yeah, yeah. Now we look back and we're like, what were we thinking? <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, we were literally, as as I was presenting, there were principals in the room getting calls that their schools were shutting down. Mm, it was, wow. it was the most bizarre thing. It mm. was very strange. So obviously that sort of affected what was going to happen in terms of schools. They went into crisis mode. So we were not going to be selling our materials to schools. That mm. was for sure. Mm -hmm. So we did 
two things um, during the quarantine period. The first thing we did was we decided to each week create a free quick guide to fostering mental health. Mm -hmm. So Jason and I would get on the phone and say, he has um, a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and I have four teenagers. Mm. And we would (laughs) get on the phone and we would say, okay, so what's going on with your house right now? And we would look at the news and we'd say, okay, what's what's the biggest topic? So we did um, something about screen time. We did something about... um, keeping your brain healthy we did um balanced choices we did why am i screaming at the people that i love Mm. we did all sorts of different stuff um and the resilience formula we did all sorts of stuff and so we just put those up on our website and made them free downloads and they were downloaded i think during the quarantine they were downloaded and we weren't known and they were downloaded like four thousand times um wow so it was really cool. So at least we got that information out. And then we talked to people about what do you need? Mm -hmm. And the feedback that we got was um, self-paced online courses Mm -hmm. for parents, students, and teachers. And so we learned a lot about creating online courses. And the first thing we did was ask about what was out there and got feedback that it was really, really bad that so many of the courses were boring or we actually had one teacher tell us that he had to do a three hour professional development online. That was an AI reading to him. Oh my So goodness. picture Siri reading to you for three hours. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was torture. So um, Jason has a friend who's a Hollywood producer and mm-hmm. he, reached out to him and said, you know, how do we make this interesting? And he said, go watch YouTube. Mm -hmm. And he gave, you know, we, we asked kids, what are their favorite YouTubers? And we really based the courses on what we know about the brain and what we know about how people learn and what we know from YouTube about what draws kids to want to learn. And so we did a lot of that. Um, and now we're expanding, we're doing, um, some memberships um, were, we just wrote a grant for um, to hopefully do courses for uh, adolescents who are incarcerated. Mm. We are doing a study with SUNY um, for the adolescent course to be used as one of their courses mm-hmm. um, for their students for health. And um, we're starting to do, we'll be doing a book club. Um, we're launching our first book talk in December, which will be free. Um, and then the rest of them will be um, part of the membership. Mm-hmm. But the free one will be um, Kelly, uh, I'm sorry, Jane McGonigal, who is a best selling author of Super Better. Um, she's a game designer and she does a fantastic job of explaining the benefits of gaming um, and why video games can be so powerful and mm-hmm. how we are going to have a talk. And part of that is going to be about video games and how we can stop fighting with our kids about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll also do some talking. She uh, Super Better is an app and it's a sort of framework for gamifying handling challenges. <laughs> I like that. It's gamifying, really cool. You know? It's really cool. <laughs> and, you know, there's so many powerful aspects of gaming. And I've heard that, that you know, in, in several different uh, venues and arenas that um, 
kids that know how to do video games, you know, it helps their brains develop faster. And, you know, they, and, you know, especially, and then when you talk about, you know, we're all distance now and now the kids connect on the, uh, on the internet, you know, and they learn how to do teamwork and, and collaborate. But also, you know, a funny thing is that, you know, like I'm, I'm actually in the market to, you know, to upgrade my, my computer system um, so I can do more audio and video. And in, in all my research, I found out that surprisingly enough, the best computers on the market for audio, for high, high tech or high top professional audio production are gaming computers. So I would have never thought that. So <laughs> absolutely. In fact, uh, we have we have a gamer in our household who is just amazing at video editing and that stuff. There's so many tools out there to help kids and they are fantastic at it Mm. and they can learn so much. And I've, I've learned to start playing some of the games with my kids and, Mm -hmm. and it's really fun. And I think it's, it's such a message that parents are going to need as we go into this winter because so often we end up fighting the games mm-hmm. rather than understanding them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. Um, just, just as we get ready to wrap up, you, you, you mentioned that there's a, so much good information out there, but not many people know how to scale it. So kind of, kind of tie that into um, the whole concept of, you know, the, the way that you're presenting your information and, and, and kind of enlighten our listeners about the whole concept of scaling. Well, scaling is is having, I used to go when it was just me, my, you know, the product that I had, what people could do is hire me to fly out and give a talk. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we have these online courses that are so affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're available. We can have, you know, whole, whole schools sign up for them so that everybody can watch them and have the same language, have that common way to talk about the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can have schools that parents have access and students. We have an adolescent course. We have an elementary course. And the courses are really fun. They're short. They're fun. They're short videos with activities. Um, we have children, uh, five part series children's books and the idea is how can we get this out there in a way that is affordable Mm -hmm. and can get to a lot of people right right so you know just making it uh available on 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 a a broad scale basis but at the same time keeping it affordable so that people can, can can access the resources so that they can get the help that they need. And then, you know, then obviously that's a win-win situation because, you know, with the fine, you know, research uh, and development that, that you've done and are continuing to do, you know, that obviously helps drive more people to, to learn, to want to know more about your research because that's how this whole interview really got started because I saw your information. I was like, wow, that's fascinating. That's amazing. So so I'm really I'm grateful for the opportunity to have you come on and explain uh, some of the final points of some of your work that you do. And so one of the things I like to do is as we get ready to wrap up a show, I like to ask my guests if they would please leave listeners with something that they could really take with them as a way of just kind of closing out the show. So at this point, uh, what would you like listeners to take away from this? And what would you like to say to listeners in general to inspire them, encourage them, and uh, keep them feeling 
positive? I think that right now we all need a little bit of inspiring. I think we've got a little bit of a tough winter, and then we've got a spring where I think we're going to begin to get a sense of normalcy beginning to come back. Mm -hmm. But when we look at this winter, when we may be spending more time again with our family, we may have the kids online, we can use this as an opportunity to build resilience and to have the gift of that time if we can frame it right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it it really is. I, I'm actually in a lot of ways looking forward to it, um, not looking forward to what's going on in the country in terms of that, but looking forward to that quality time and things that we can do together. Yes. Um, and when we can be proactive about it, when we can have those conversations in a reasonable way, it can be much more rewarding. And I would encourage people to visit our website. It's www.pathwaystoempower.com. Mm -hmm. And there are free resources. So I would encourage people to at least go download some of the free resources and take a look. Okay. And is there uh, other ways they can reach? Is there a uh, email address or or, or or business phone that you like to or you just, just direct everybody to your website? No, they can certainly email me at Donna at Pathways to Empower. Okay. So my email is Donna at Pathways to Empower dot com. Okay. All right. And so uh, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That's going to wrap it up for us here on the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. And again, this has been Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. And it's been my distinct pleasure to have with me today, Dr. Donna Volpita. She's been a wealth of information and wealth of knowledge. Donna, I want to thank you so much for coming on and uh, educating our listeners. Thank you so much for being a guest here on the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed the talk. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate and host of the show. You've been listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. This and all other programs are available on the Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Anchor podcast platforms. Go to any search engine and type in Kelson on the Air in the search window to hear this show in its entirety. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a Kelson Communications production.